Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Last month, Hartford Public Schools Interim Superintendent Dr. Leslie Torres-Rodriguez came on the show to respond to an Office of Child Advocate investigation, an investigation which found the Hartford School District failed to adequately address multiple allegations of abuse against school staff. The superintendent stressed the district is committed to regaining the trust of Hartford, Hartford parents. Rather, Coming up, WNPR's David DeRoche will join us to talk about whether that's happening. Hartford parents were at a community forum last night. And later we'll hear what gun legislation is being debated in both Connecticut and in Congress. Is gun reform dead under a new president and Republican majority? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll take your calls in a little bit. First, it's been more than four years since the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. It's common for the public to forget about acts of violence that happen around us each day, whether the events make it to the national news or in your town newspaper. But what happens to the families and the friends of the victims to the community where they once resided months even years later filmmaker kim snyder tried to answer that question she spent three and a half years in newtown and her documentary of the same name premieres on pbs stations nationwide april 3rd kim snyder joins us from npr studios in midtown manhattan as well as producer maria cuomo cole kim and maria welcome to where we live good morning good morning thanks for having us kim i'll start with you tell us about what brought you to this project? Are you from Connecticut and what made you want to go to Newtown and and start to hear these stories? No, I'm actually, I I live here in New York City and um, it started where uh, some some old colleagues from a not-for-profit had some contacts in the interfaith community up in Newtown just after the tragedy and asked me if I, as a director, if I would go up and explore some short-form content, and and quite frankly, I was really reluctant to do so. There were, uh, as we all remember, so many news cameras, and I just uh, felt very reluctant to do that. But I I did go up, and I I made some early connections with um, some of the faith leaders in Newtown, including Father Bob Weiss, who had, had, as we remember, buried so many of those children in one week and was really struck and had such empathy for the um, the trauma and the position that so many different people found themselves in. And so it started to evolve very organically and quietly to a vision for uh, a piece that would really uh, depict an entire community in, in the wake of such a horrible uh, tragedy. And Maria, when did you get involved? I got involved um, the first year of Kim's um, exploration in in the community because as she was developing the story, um, we talked about the importance of um, of representing the aftermath, the the true aftermath of such a horrific um, act of gun violence. You know, the cameras um, capture the the trauma and the incidents in shooting after shooting, but, you know, the cameras move on and communities are left to, you know, re, 
you know, regain their lives, reestablish their lives in a very different way. And uh, we felt it was important to show the long-term effect of what happens to families who lose loved ones and to a community at large. You mentioned that the cameras uh, move on, and I would imagine that there's some fatigue in the community um, from having reporters and writers and, and filmmakers in their, their community um, after such a tragedy. So, Kim, walk us through the process when you said you connected with the interfaith community. I mean, how did you get people to trust you? It's, it's a great question. I mean, honestly, um, we had I had long conversations with a lot of the people who did ultimately participate in the film about long-form documentary, about the fact that I was partnering with PBS, uh, with ITVS, which I'd done in the past, and um, how important it was to um, be able to, in some ways, give them back a voice or agency um, in something that wasn't you know, the, the news, I think, did as good a job as, as they could, but there are limitations because of, as Maria said, because of, of time and, and, and the next, the, the, you know, the next tragedy. And so we really wanted to spend time to break through um, what I saw was a sort of dangerous desensitization. Um, and for those people who really uh, felt that this needed to be um, acknowledged for what it was um, and honored, uh, as a as a horrific scar and mark in 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 American history, um, those are the people who chose to, or, or they felt it cathartic, to be able to bear witness to this. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking to filmmakers Kim Snyder and Maria Cuomo Cole. Uh, they both worked on the new documentary film Newtown. It's premiering on PBS stations April 3rd. There's a community screening happening in Connecticut. We're going to give you the details just a little bit later. Um, one of the the family members, uh, Kim and Maria, that opened up to you um, during your, your process of, of making Newtown was Mark Barden. Um, he was one of the parents um, that was vocal about what happened to his family and the loss of his child, Daniel Barden. Let's hear a little of that, um, part of that interview. I still dread that every day I live, I'm one day farther away from my life with Daniel. I didn't want to take the clothes out of his drawer. I, I didn't want to touch anything. I wouldn't leave everything just the way it was. So Jackie actually had her sisters while we were away one weekend clean out all the drawers. I still have a little secrets stashed around. He used to wear this old yellow football helmet when, we'd, when he'd ride in the little seat in the back of my bicycle. And uh, I have that in the garage and it still has some beautiful little long blonde hairs of his in it. I'm gonna, I'll keep that forever. Again, that was uh, one of the clips from the documentary film Newtown. You know, it's very hard to watch, and obviously you know because both of you uh, worked on uh, this for such a long time, got to know uh, people in that community. Um, but at the same time, it's just a very you know intimate uh, moment where he's talking about this. And, and how did you? I mean, how did you feel when you were getting that kind of, of openness from these families who are still grieving? It was a long process, as, as you say, of, of trust building. And uh, what, I, what I was thinking to say before was it, I think there was also a recognition that um, there was no particular agenda per se. Um, we didn't go in trying to make a, a decidedly political movie. We just really wanted to honor 
um, the the emotional fallout from a number of perspectives. And so those relationships were real. They, they, they took a long time to forge and build trust. Um, and um, it's it, it became increasingly painful to um, to understand the depths, to, to even begin to understand the depths of what so many people went to went through and still go through every day. Um, so, you know, for me, that's been both, you know, personally and an honor and a, um, and, a, you know, a real challenge to try to join forces and, and, and do whatever we can to, to ensure that this happens less. And Maria, um, again, you're producer of, of Newtown. I understand that you've worked on other documentaries where um, you get observations and, and interviews about what has happened in a community after a, a large-scale um, tragedy like Virginia Tech. Tell us about that work and, and how that, in a way, helped you work on this new film. Well, in many ways, it inspired my involvement in the Newtown film because um, with my work with Living for 32, which was about the Virginia Tech experience um, through a young man's uh, uh, recovery from being shot multiple times in his classroom, Colin Goddard, who grew to become a uh, leading national advocate, um, you know, I was very much intrigued and um, and resolute about the importance of continuing the story. So in the Virginia Tech community, we were able to, um, to you know, tell the stories about the students' experiences, teachers, administrators who lost lives, lost loved ones, um, but the community moved on. It was a community in, you know, in transition. Uh, here in Newtown were uh, law enforcement, faith leaders, teachers, parents, neighbors living together, committed to their community that were going to continue as such. And the um, the psychology and the emotional trauma of that growing together, moving forth together, um, I felt was very, very important um, to share in order for people to understand the real human toll of our gun violence epidemic in the country and the need for a stricter access to weapons and um, you know, stronger laws. Now, after Newtown, because of you know, the magnitude of it, it got a lot of attention. Some of the families um, began to lobby for gun control. Um, at the time, uh, President Obama and, and many Democrats uh, responded to that and tried to push through uh, gun control measures that um, Congress ultimately did not vote on. Was it difficult to not include a lot of that, the political um, the repercussions after this tragedy, Kim? I, you know, yeah, not not really, because we were so um, Marie and I were both um, so on the same page about this being um, a very directed look, as we as we keep mentioning about collective trauma and resilience, and we felt there was also um, a story of grace and hope in watching a community try to to forge on through the unthinkable. Um, you know, ha- having said that, I think that now we see a lot of um, impact with the film. And one of the things that is heartening is I don't think there's a lot of films out there that get in through this particular emotional way 
that we hope takes this that that opens up dialogue and and breaks out of this terribly polarized political space that people want to be able to talk about how to keep their kids safe in school and uh the film we found really speaks to a lot of diverse audiences around the country, um, regardless of, of, of partisan politics. To, to, to talk more about the resilience, uh, the resilience theme throughout this film, um, not just focusing on um, the families that were directly impacted, you did reach out to other members of the Newtown community. Um, there's a really poignant conversation with uh, one of these, uh, these members, a uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School custodian, uh, Rick Thorne. Uh, let's hear a little bit about what he told you. Is there a day that I don't think about it? I don't think there's an hour or a couple hours I'm not thinking of some something about it. When I went back to work, I know the first two days, I was not there. I was working. Um, I wasn't there. How do you get through your days? The kids. The kids at the school. The laughing, the smiling. And it sounds like, Kim, that was you asking him the question about how he gets through his days? Yes. Um, you know, I was so struck with um, Rick's position. Uh, he was, you know, like so many people, uh, a very heroic person that day. And I think that um, he just had such and continues to have such incredible uh, concern and protection over that educator community. And it was important for us to recognize uh, not only the, the heroism of their colleagues who they lost, but to, um, to again, show that prism of what it was like for that community, that sub-community, to get up two days later and have to be there. And as they said, they... They needed to be there for the kids, um, and I know many of them have uh, sort of gone on to see a lot of those those children who survived through, you know, the the subsequent years of, of their um, of their schooling. Mm. Um, as you did your process the la the last three and a half years uh, to before you um, made the film Newtown, did you run across people in the community who? were comfortable communicating to you or to Maria that you know they 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 wanted to move on from this um, that they don't want to see their their town um, the symbolicness of this will this will be what when people here in Newtown will always think of this this awful thing that happened and if you did encounter people like that I mean how does that play out in the community between those who they want to remember who were lost and make sure that people don't forget what happened. Yes. Well, I mean, I always like to preface, I mean, Newtown is 28,000 people, and I certainly can't speak for the town, but in observing it uh, and becoming a part of the group of people that we did, be, you know, become part of their lives, um, I think it's probably true for a lot of victim communities that there's this, uh, this, this um, as you as you say, this difficult, uh, and for leadership as well, this difficult thing about people just wanting to um, to return to their lives and, and have some sense of normalcy back. But at the same time, early on, we heard this mantra continuously about not wanting to be just remembered as a place of tragedy, but as a place 
uh, that that of, of meaning, and that's certainly something we saw, not just by way of of making uh, changes in policy, but this is a spe- it was a special community. I think before this happened, um, it, it, it continues to be a special community, and I think that. Um, it's a tricky thing because as much as maybe just after the tragedy there was a, a trauma from an added trauma from the media it's it's also i think disturbing to travel the country and learn that since then you know there's been over 1200 mass shootings if you define them as four or more uh people at the same time being shot and now you have people that don't remember. They actually don't know the name Newtown or Sandy Hook. Um, and that's, I would think, also really troubling um, for people to just forget something that th- th- that town, and I would say all of Connecticut, was traumatized, um, can never forget. You mentioned the mass shootings, and Maria, if you'd like to respond as well to this next question, I mean, those obviously get the the headlines. But then every day we're surrounded by, um, in this country, there are these incidents uh, related to gun violence that don't get um, the headlines. And I'm curious, um, in your again, um, in your interviews and the connections you made, uh, both of you in, in Newtown, how did you see that community? Maybe some members reaching out to other victims of gun violence, whether it's in Hartford or other communities where, again. Uh, crimes uh, of violence happen all the time, but they don't get the attention, not like something when, when Newtown or Virginia Tech happens. That is absolutely true. And it's, um, you know, it's it's a big part of um, the reform movement uh, in terms of coalition building and communities caring for one another. Um, you know, 90 people a day are murdered by gun violence in the United States, and many, many more are injured. So the ripple effect of impact is really tremendous. And at epidemic uh, levels, it, it is really fair to say. Uh, the experiences of Chicago, a city like Chicago, or other urban areas around the country are very much supported and um, at the forefront of the uh, effort to strengthen gun laws. And in fact, we've just produced three webisodes, um, one of which addresses this issue specifically uh, about a Reverend Pastor Sam Saylor in Hartford who's building coalitions, suburban, urban alliances to help uh, push forth reforms on state levels and nationally, and more importantly, just to create greater empathy. Uh, for victims' families and communities. Yeah, and I would just add to that that um, we're actually, uh, uh, together with PBS, having an event at Wesleyan that will bring together some of the community from Hartford and um, and Newtown uh, and some of those, those alliances that were built early on just after the tragedy. And we'll tweet out. Yeah, we'll tweet out that information at where we live. Um, And I wanted to ask the next question about um, obviously this. This film has been screened uh, nationwide. It screened at Sundance. You have that event happening at Western University on Saturday. What's been the response? It's been, uh, in some ways, very consistent. Uh, People are. um, It's it's been very powerful. It's hard to put into words across the country. Uh, the ripple effect, as Maria mentioned, is profound. There's, there's barely a screening that I, we've been, I've been to over 80 myself, and 
I think we've had it more than a thousand community screenings since its premiere at Sundance last year, and, and we'll have our broadcast in just over a week on PBS. But it's uh, there's always people in the audience from Connecticut. There's always people who have relatives in Newtown who are from Connecticut, teachers. Um, it's resounded uh, very loudly with students, um, with clergy, and that's really what we want to do with our impact campaign is to help lift up those voices of uh, concerned teachers and law enforcement and clergy that just want to have civil dialogue uh, as a nation around this issue and, and reduce uh, and, and, and see it as the public uh, health crisis that, that it is. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with director and producer of the documentary film Newtown. Kim Snyder directed it. Maria Cuomo Cole produced the documentary film. I wanted to play one more clip before we, we go to break, and, and that's of uh, Nicole Hockley. This is a woman, um, another parent who's been very outspoken since she lost her son, Dylan, in the Sandy Hook shooting. I wanted to play a little bit of what she told you. How could someone who who was in my life for six years suddenly be gone. It's impossible to understand. But he was here. He did exist. And he has a legacy that I have to fulfill for him. And that I will fulfill for him. And Kim, I'll go back to you. When we hear that clip of Nicole Hockley, it, it, her desire to keep his memory alive, to keep his legacy going, it, it sounds like that's what's keeping her going. And is there, did you sense that, that she has hope? Yes. I mean, so many of the families and, and others have created different ways of, of honoring uh, those who were lost and their legacies. And in the case of Nicole, uh, she and, and some others, and, and Mark Barden had had, uh, had started this 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 uh, organization, Sandy Hook Promise, which is doing wonderful work to um, really train teachers and students around the country to look for signs even before the gun and to to move into that space. And I know there's just so much other great work that has been inspired, um, as I said, in an attempt to transform tragedy into meaning. The film Newtown premieres on PBS stations April 3rd. Now, CBTV and Independent Lens is presenting a free screening of the film at the Ring Family Performing Arts Hall at Wesleyan University. That's next Saturday, April 1st. Uh, we've tweeted out that information. We'll also have that information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Director Kim Snyder and producer Maria Cuomo Cole, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you thank so you. much. The Newtown tragedy catapulted the issue of gun reform to the national stage, yet Congress failed to pass any meaningful reform laws in the wake of Sandy Hook. Now the dynamic in Washington has changed. We wanted to know what gun issues are federal and state lawmakers paying attention to now. We'll find out after the break. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. 
As we heard, some Newtown families affected by the Sandy Hook shootings devoted themselves to efforts to enact gun reform laws after the tragedy. President Barack Obama was one of many Democrats who pledged their support of those measures, including universal background checks, among others. Ultimately, Congress refused to act, and now the dynamic in Washington has changed. So what if any bills on gun issues could pass under President Trump and the Republican Majority Congress? Will gun rights now take center stage? To answer that question, joining us by phone is Michelle Gorman, political reporter for Newsweek. Michelle, welcome to the to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I wanted to, you to just remind us about some of the executive orders that President Obama had issued on guns um, because of the failure of Congress to, to pass a lot of these measures. Sure. So, uh, President Obama actually enacted two different sets of executive actions on uh, gun safety. Uh, his goal was to reduce gun violence. Um, that first set came in 2013 in the wake of the Sandy Hook shooting, uh, and the second set came um, in January 2016. And um, there were about uh, there were a little over 40 actions that he took throughout his presidency. Um, and just kind of to highlight a few of those, um, well, actually just wanted to point out they didn't actually change federal law um, per se, but they kind of um, clarified certain points. Um, so he wanted to explore and promote new gun safety technology, um, hire as many as 230 FBI agents to process background checks. Um, he wanted to enact new requirements to report loss of stolen firearms um, and even allow doctors to uh, submit more mental health records to um, the federal background check registry without legal, legal repercussions uh, because sometimes doctors can uh, face um, action if they do discuss guns mm -hmm. with their patients in certain states. And in the first few days of President Trump's, um, uh, after being elected and, and going into office in January, he did roll back uh, something specific to these executive orders dealing with those who were mentally ill. Can you tell us about that? Sure, that's correct. So it was uh, regarding a Social Security Administration regulation that um, President Obama had spoken about shortly after the Sandy Hook shooting, and it wasn't actually implemented until um, last December. So it was only in place for two months, but um, basically it was um, – it, it, its goal was to prevent certain individuals with uh, mental health conditions from buying firearms. Um, the NRA called it Obama's constitutional gun grab and were very outspoken in, in having um, this revoked, which is what he did uh, within his, uh, President Trump did, excuse me, within his first um, month of the presidency this year. Over the years, Donald Trump has wavered in his stance on gun control. You reported that um, back in 2000, he said he has su he supported a ban on assault weapons, um, maybe also, I think also slightly uh, would support a slightly longer waiting period to purchase a gun. So how has his his stance uh, wavered over the years? Yeah, that's correct. President Trump wasn't always uh, such a strong supporter of gun rights. We didn't actually hear him uh, speaking out so much on the Second Amendment until just shortly before he announced his candidacy in 2015. So as you mentioned, the um, book that he wrote in 2000 called The America We Deserve, he spoke um, about gun control and how he generally opposed gun control, but um, favored an, uh, a ban on uh, assault weapons and also longer waiting periods to purchase a gun. Um, he, in that book, called out Republicans who walk the NRA line um, and even refuse limited restrictions on gun control. Um, so that was in 2000. Fast forward to April tw uh, 2015, he spoke at an NRA event. Um, basically, you know, he said 
that there's no other uh, family in America who loves the Second Amendment more than my own, um, which is something he repeated uh, on the campaign trail once he declared as well. Um, he often tout, touted his um, two adult sons as, quote, serious NRA, um, and he has spoken again at the NRA's leadership forum since. Um, and then as a candidate, so he, he really shifted his, his, or seemed to shift his views um, on gun rights and gun control. Um, we, on the campaign trail, often heard him attacking uh, gun-free zones and saying how he wanted to abolish those at schools and on military bases. Um, you know, you might remember the comment he made um, at one of the earlier debates saying he could stand uh, in the middle of Fifth Ave and shoot someone and wouldn't lose any voters. Um, he... Uh, you know, he told the American public that he owns a gun, he has a concealed carry permit, um, which he bragged is difficult to obtain um, in New York State, which has pretty strict gun laws. Um, and even five days before the election, he uh, formed a Second Amendment coalition, uh, which was or is um, a 64-member group um, containing uh, NRA officials and gun manufacturers all to um, advise him on the Second Amendment. Um, and then just the last point I wanted to make is that the NRA um, endorsed him in May of 2016, um, pretty far before the election. Um, and in contrast, they hadn't um, endorsed uh, Romney or McCain until October of their election year. So they, the NRA really went hard on Trump, um, on, in supporting Trump, and they uh, were the, they spent, out of all the different interest groups, they spent um, the most money on his presidency. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On the phone is Michelle Gorman, political reporter for Newsweek. Um, she's reported on um, the stance and possible action uh, under President Trump and a Republican majority on gun rights. Um, Michelle, we know that immigration and health care have dominated the headlines. Uh, what's happening behind the scenes in terms of, you know, is he going to deliver on the promises he made to the gun rights lobby? I think he will. Um, you know, he said he would unsign um, Obama's executive actions that we talked about earlier in the segment um, on his first day in office, which didn't necessarily come on his first day, but um, he has taken significant um, steps for gun rights advocates since he took office in January. Um, we talked about that Social Security uh, ban that he rolled back. Um, and um, there's also the um, Veterans Second Amendment Protection Act, which is um, bound to reach his desk. I think the GOP-controlled Congress is, um, I think they see an ally in Trump um, with the uh, kind of, well, with gun rights and possibly um, lessening restrictions on guns, which I think um, is why some of these actions are coming. You know, it's only March. He's been in office for, you know, two months. Um, so I, I think we will see um, a lot of progress, or uh, yeah, I'm sorry, a lot of step forward um, on lessening gun restrictions, um, especially as these other distractions are happening, you know, healthcare, possible Russia collusion is happening in the, the news every day. There's headlines about the, po the possibility of border, uh, building a border wall. So there's a lot going on. Um, and I, I wonder if that's part of the strategy, mm -hmm. strategy or if it just is kind of <laughs> just happening as it is. Can I ask you quickly about a, a bill that has been um, introduced by a congressman uh, dealing with reciprocity, so it requires states that issue permits allowing gun owners to carry concealed weapons to recognize such permits from other states. Uh, the reason being is that in Connecticut, uh, there's also debate about this. 
Sure. So this, uh, the National Concealed Carry Reciprocity, is the NRA told me it's one of two top priorities um, this year, and uh, it's not necessarily anything new to Congress. Um, there's been bills in the past that have been introduced, but just failed to um, get out of committee. Um, so as you said, it, this this legislation would require states that issue um, permits allowing gun owners to carry concealed weapons um, to recognize such permits from other states. So take a state like New York or Connecticut, which has strict gun laws, um, and then a state like Florida, which, <clears throat> excuse me, um, there aren't as such stringent laws. Um, that that person who got a permit in Florida, um, probably, I mean, quite easily compared to New York or Connecticut standards, could legally carry that weapon um, in New York and Connecticut. Um, now, every state um, in Washington, D.C. allows concealed carry in some form, um, but every state has their own restrictions. For example, um, not allowing residents to carry in such places like bars, schools, hospitals, or even some government buildings. Um, so the NRA, their argument is that this is a common sense solution to a real problem because they say that uh, it's confusing for gun owners who want to travel with their firearms um, to go to different states and not um, understand what those state laws are and potentially, you know, be arrested for um, having a firearm in a luggage or whatever the case may be. Um, but then opponents argued that um, this would enable the least restrictive requirements to apply to the entire country, and they see this as a, a very grave danger. That's Michelle Gorman, political reporter at Newsweek. I wanted to transition to, again, what's happening here in Connecticut. Uh, we mentioned lawmakers in Connecticut are debating legislation that will impact gun owners. To tell us more, Daniela Altamari is joining us by phone. She's State House reporter for the Hartford Current. Daniela, welcome back to the show. Hi. We were talking about re- reciprocity. Tell us about this House bill and what kind of support there is for it. Yeah, there was a uh, public hearing um, uh, two weeks ago, I think, um, on this uh, proposal. And what it would do, it would uh, in Connecticut, it would empower the state attorney general to enter into agreements with other states. And, you know, people who support it, you know, um, people who own guns and people who want to see this passed say, you know, it would not force uh, Connecticut to recognize permits from uh, Florida or Oklahoma or, or a state that has sort of a drastically different um uh, philosophy and uh, process of obtaining uh, of obtaining a gun permit um, that it would allow uh, the attorney general to you know, basically look at what other states are doing and then enter into these agreements with states that are very similar, such as New York and Massachusetts, that have sort of similar strict uh, requirements. So they are saying that you know that, again this is um, this would be really helpful to to uh, to pistol permit owners who you know travel from state to state. This is a very poor society. People are always coming in and out. You know somebody made the um, uh, the case that you know they were a truck driver. They carry. They you know can't. Uh, no, you know, they don't want to be, they want to be in compliance of the state law wherever they are. Um, and this would allow that. Um, on the other side, you know, p- uh, p- critics are saying, you know, this is just, you know, a way to, you know, perhaps undermine in some way Connecticut's um, very strict requirements. You mentioned Florida. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe that state allows open carry. But here in Connecticut, we do, and there's another bill that's talking about um, when someone that's open carrying would mm-hmm. have to show their permit to the to the cops. 
Yeah, and that is also uh, being fought uh, by people who, um, you know, gun owners, uh, gun gun rights groups like the Connecticut Citizens Defense League, they, they don't want to see this. Um, that was also the subject of a public hearing. And those are really the two major um, bills this session. I mean, there isn't, um, you know, obviously after uh, the Newtown tragedy, there was a, you know, a huge overhaul of state's um, guns law, gun laws. Um, and we, we're not seeing that this year. These are sort of, you know, they're uh, obviously important legislation, but they're, you know, in some ways, you know, a little bit more incremental than some of the some of the um, uh, proposals that uh, passed, um, you know, shortly after after Newtown. Uh, Daniela, so again, these are two bills. Have they been voted out of committee? Are they going to get to the floor? They have not been voted out of committee, but the, there's still plenty of time. There is a third proposal that is not um, that is a, a budget issue. Although, again, you know, to gun owners, they they read this very differently. Um, the governor, in his budget proposal, is uh, calling for a very steep, uh, several hundred dollar increase in um, in gun permit fees, and you know. It's presented as part of the budget, and lots of things are going up, and lots of you know, lots of uh, you know, property tax credit. Other things are being done away with, but you know, for gun owners, given the strained relationship that they've had with this very pro-gun control governor um, and administration and legislature, frankly, they are you know, gun rights groups are are reading this as you know, perhaps another assault and another you know, something else to fight. And there's been a lot of chatter about that as well. And we know the deficit's a big problem. So of the three bills, would that one have the most legs, Daniela? Their extra extra money for the, the general fund? It's tough to say. Certainly the deficit is driving all discussions, even philosophical discussions about, you know, uh, how guns should be regulated in the state. So, you know, clearly that's a that's a driving force. But, you know, who knows? I mean, it's it's early. Deals get made. Things happen over there that, you know, maybe you can't always predict. But, um, you know, certainly that's drawn a lot of attention and, and a lot of criticism from from gun owners. Again, this is where we live. We're talking about uh, the future of gun legislation, not only on the federal level, but here in Connecticut. We're going to head to break soon, but uh, we have a a call. John from Glastonbury. John, quickly, before we go to break. Hey, how are you? Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, I've got uh, relatives that were actually in Newtown at the time of the shooting. And I think the entire conversation is very disingenuous to, to suggest that people that are against some of the gun legislation that's been proposed are unsympathetic or unfeeling. And what really frustrates me is that there's a lot of solutions that we're not even talking about. And uh, I've got one solution that I'm pretty convinced Moms Demand Action and the NRA could come together and agree on, and we're not talking about it. All right, John. Well, I don't think we were suggesting that that at all, but um, we appreciate uh, your your comment. And you're right. Maybe people on different sides of the issue should come together on many different uh, conversation pieces. But we appreciate your call. Uh, we got to go to break, but I do want to thank uh, Daniela Altamari, State House reporter for the Hartford Current, and uh, Michelle Gorman, political reporter for Newsweek. And we'll have to check in again near the end of the session and to see what happens in Congress. Uh, Michelle and Daniela, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Next, we get an update to a segment Where We Live did last month after a damning report shed attention on the way Hartford Public Schools failed to respond to allegations of abuse by school staff. That's next.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, we can't let March go without recognizing it's Women's History Month. On the next Where We Live, from the so-called Motor Girls to the Kalamazoo Gals, we'll take an in-depth look at the 20th century women who helped shape American industry. That's on Monday. Now, last month, Hartford Public Schools Interim Superintendent Dr. Leslie Torres-Rodriguez came on Where We Live to respond to an Office of Child Advocate investigation, an investigation which found the Hartford School District failed to adequately address multiple allegations of abuse against school staff. The superintendent stressed the district's committed to regaining the trust of Hartford parents. How's that going? Well, parents got a chance to address school officials last night. WNPR's David DeRoche, our education reporter, was at that community conversation. He's here now to tell us more. David, welcome back. Thanks, Lucy. So who was at this event last night? What was the purpose? So uh, about half of the seats were filled. It was about, uh, it seems like there were about 100 chairs there, and it was mostly parents, um, other community members. Uh, Craig Stallings from the Board of Education, uh, the Board of Education chairman was there speaking, um, the superintendent, and also Sarah Egan, the child advocate, was there also presenting. You said there was only half of the, the room was filled. Are you surprised by that, given the response to this, again, investigation that found that there were um, some substantiated claims, some unsubstantiated about allegation, but the way the school district handled it was poor? Right. Um, I think it was a little bit surprising for some people. Um, I try, I've tried to get a figure, uh, a sense of how the uh, district had promoted it. I'm not sure if they had sent out district-wide emails or um, I know they had tweeted some information about it. I know a parent organization had released some information about it. But certainly um, there's going to be a number of reasons why parents couldn't show up. Uh, you know, they either had to work or had to take care of children. Um, but they are the district is uh, planning a couple more of these events, and they are offering child care, and they offer, are offering free pizza. And But the, the thing is, is that these events are uh, kind of geared toward getting these conversations going because one of the things that they say uh, needs to happen is, is have more of these conversations because this is an issue that has been a problem for a long time in the district. You talked to some parents. One was Sapphire Snyder. What did she say? So Sapphire is a mom of a seven-year-old kid at Milner School. That was where the, uh, the event was. And uh, she, like a lot of parents, um, told me that uh, things happen in the schools that just really don't ever get addressed. It kind of scares me to know that babies were being, the children were being molested or neglected and abused and nobody said, could you imagine how them children felt coming to school every day? Did, did uh, Sapphire tell you if she felt that now that this has come to light that people will be held accountable? Well, that was one of her concerns is that, you know, who is going to be held accountable? So we're told that everybody who was involved in the specific incident that sparked the Office of the Child Advocate investigation that all the employees have been let or no longer with the district. They didn't specify whether they were let go or not, but they're no longer with the district. Um, But people are still concerned that there are other people in the district who might have known and done nothing. Um, The child advocate talked about this, how there might have been allegations levied against an employee, but those allegations were never substantiated, so those employees are still in the district. Um, And that was one of the things Stephanie talked about. She really wants to know if these people will be held accountable. I hope they all held responsible. All the teachers and administrators and everybody that were involved from 2006 to 2016, they need to be fired. All the schools. I don't care if they have to wipe a school out of all teachers and administrators. Everybody needs to be fired because nobody's baby should have to go through coming to school and being touched inappropriately and no one's listening. And that raises the question, who are the people at the table when something like this happens and there needs to be an investigation, David, um, that involves leadership within the school? When does the, the state get involved? When does the uh, State Department of Children and Families get involved? Uh, what's the union's role in, in this as well? Right. So um, it, it, 
It appears to be complicated, but it's really not. So if anybody hears of an allegation of abuse or neglect, they have 12 hours to report it to DCF or the police. That's basically how it how it goes. You're not obligated to investigate yourself. You're not obligated to try to substantiate it. And this was something that the superintendent was trying to reiterate last night, was that there might have been confusion over what people are supposed to do. But the, the law is very clear. You should just report it. Even if you don't know whether it's true or not, if you hear uh, that it's happened, then you're supposed to report it. Um, and one of the things that I thought was interesting was that uh, the Board of Ed Chairman Craig Stallings was also there, and he uh, talked about how um, how he disgusted and, and, and angry he was, but also how he wasn't really surprised that this has been happening. As a student, I've seen a lot of this. Um, I've witnessed a lot of it. You know, I've heard of a lot of it. And, you know, there were, I went to Fox Middle, you know, there was administrators there that were completely questionable. Um, so, and, and, you know, no one intervened and no one said anything. And, and so years later, you see a lot of, I see a lot of people that lives were completely ruined and you, it was in the seventh grade. Like you, you, you know, when you think back, I, I can almost visualize the day that that particular person's lives was ruined. This is the new Board of Education Chairman, Craig Stallings. Yes. And he's saying that this doesn't surprise him because he went through the schools and it happened then? Right. And I think even he admitted that um, it was kind of unfortunate that it wasn't surprising. And I think uh, perhaps maybe not in his case, but for a lot of people, um, it, it, they might have been desensitized um, because of how long it's been going on. But um, this Office of the Child Advocate report seems to uh, awakened a lot of people. Now, if this happened at a suburban school, there's sentiment in the community that this might have been taken more seriously. What are you hearing from parents? That didn't necessarily come up last night. Um, the issue that was really just kind of uh, reiterated consistently by the parents was that they raise concerns that tend to go nowhere. Um, the superintendent, who is the acting superintendent, she's been in the position for a few months now, um, really hammered home that she's in, in the authority and the position of authority now and that uh, she really wants to take it seriously and kind of move the district in a different direction. And she urged parents who felt like they were not getting anywhere with their concerns to come directly to her. Now, um, Dr. Torres Rodriguez is also one of the finalists for, for the permanent position. That's right. And when you talk to parents, I mean, do they feel like they now have some people that are in these authority positions that are, are really listening to them? That was one thing that um, that they did mention. So before the meeting, when I talked to parents, the sentiment was very concerned. Um, and they expressed a lot of their concerns during the conversation. But then afterwards, um, there was a sense that they were heard, that they were listened to, and that the district was going to take it seriously. Uh, they wanted to also keep open the option of uh, legal challenges should the district not move forward. Um, so that is still an option. They haven't gone that direction yet, but obviously it's still something they could consider. Do we know if any lawsuits have been filed related to these, these allegations that were investigated? I haven't seen anything or heard anything. Um, certainly, there have been a lot of talk, um, been some reports that there has been some consideration, but I haven't seen anything official yet. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our education reporter, David DeRoche, is in studio. We're just getting an update on a, a community conversation held in Hartford after an Office of Child Advocate report showed that allegations of abuse and neglect, um, they weren't followed through within the Hartford Public Schools. And we want to take a quick call now. Larry is calling from Hartford. Larry, you're on the show. Yes, thank you. Uh, it looks like there's a crisis in confidence in public officials. Uh, officials. I'll say as a um, city council member that people have come up to us and say, why can't you do something? As a doctor, people uh, know that I'm a mandated reporter. But in terms of the appeal for, for uh, a legal uh, examination, 
we have uh, submitted some of the facts, but yet the chief attorney for the Board of Education apparently is, uh, uh, um, uh, we're told, maybe leaving, and parents, I think, want to see if justice can be done. Likewise, appealing to the state's attorney's office, that's Hardy, uh, uh, there has been uh, just a dismissal of that claim without a, an adequate time to investigate with parents and others being questioned. So uh, if, uh, the parents are certainly right to be outraged that public officials have not uh, responded with the, with the promptness and the firmness, including those who are uh, permitted to leave without any consequence. And whether that means the uh, attorney for the Board of Education, name is Cutler Hodgman, or the uh, state's attorney, name is Hardy, who uh, haven't really pursued it, it's understandable that the public gets disillusioned and we hear about it. Well, Larry, thank you for your call. I know David will follow up uh, on that, um, on those comments. Um, but he'd also said something, David, and we just have a, about another minute to go, but uh, Larry had also said just with, um, there's this revolving door. I mean, do parents even know who to go to? Again, the Hartford uh, School Board is now looking to hi- hire another permanent superintendent after the last one has left. I mean, is there just a question of, of who are the people that are in these authority positions and what can be done? Do parents know who they are? Sure. I mean, that's certainly a, a, an issue that's been going on for a long time. I think um, uh, one of the issues that was brought up last night was uh, union authority and the perception that unions uh, or that unions have these protections, um, it, it, whether or not um, the, those protections impede their ability to um, um, to take these allegations seriously or not is is up to to uh, to be determined. But um, the office of the child advocate and Sarah Egan um, uh, mentioned that uh, if legislation is needed to enforce uh, these laws, and that's what needs to happen. So we'll turn now to the General Assembly to see if a representative will put together a proposal related to what you're talking about. It, it could turn out like that. Well, I want to thank WMPR's David DeRoche. He's WMPR's education reporter. Uh, today's show is produced by Lydia Brown. Also thanks to Jeff Tyson and technical producer Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.